Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Moi-même, son petit businessman de moi, moi mon petit business sur les radios Haïti, côté... This is the story of three people bound together by one language, Haitian Creole. In April 2000, one of those three people died. Haiti's democratic movement remained in shock today, just 24 hours after pioneering radio broadcaster and leading pro-democracy activist Jean-Dominique was gunned down in the courtyard of his radio station. Gunman ambushed You'll know something about Jean-Dominique if you've seen the Jonathan Demi documentary The Agronomist. If not, no worries. All will become clear. One language, three people. Here are the other two. Do you remember the first time we met? We met in a parking lot. and uh... <laughs> That's Michelle Montas, Jean-Dominique's widow. And the woman who spoke first is Laura Wagner. She was a doctoral candidate back then. This parking lot meeting... It was a restaurant lot in North Carolina. It was on the eve of the 14th anniversary of Jean-Dominique's death. People were gathering for a commemorative meal. Laura approached Michelle and introduced herself. Do you remember what I said? No, I don't. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. What I said was something along the lines of... Which translates as, you're a huge hero of mine. Excuse me, because I'm a little hungover. That's what I said. (laughs) And then you started laughing and said, oh, your Creole's so good. But I had defended my dissertation the day before. (laughs) Hence the hangover. And you spoke Creole to me. And I was absolutely, my eyes were just like this. I just couldn't figure out how this young lady could speak Creole. Michelle was enchanted. She'd recently donated the archives of Radio Haiti to Duke University, and Duke was looking for someone to be the archivist. It would be tricky. Radio Haiti Inter, to give it its full name, used to broadcast in a mix of Haiti's two main languages, French, traditionally the language of the rich and powerful, and Creole, the universal language spoken by rich and poor alike. That was what set the station apart. And whoever oversaw the archives would need to reflect that in ways that no one had figured out yet. But in that parking lot, Michelle decided she'd found her archivist. Yes, I said immediately that you were the person you should be taking care of the archives. Not only because you said that I was a hero for you, that part didn't count that much for me. What counted for me was how frank and open you were about having a malmacac, which means having drank too much the night before because you were defending your dissertation. So to me, you were the type of person who could understand uh, what our journey had been about. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, it's subtitle. Stories about languages and the people who speak them. The people in this case are, well, the entire nation of Haiti. And the Creole language they all speak is embedded with words and ideas that frighten the nation's rulers. Put that language on the radio and hold your breath. Okay, so Laura, what is Creole? How did it come into being? I'm no linguist, but Creole came into existence because of the Atlantic slave trade. 
So uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries, there were hundreds of thousands of African people who were enslaved in Saint-Domingue, the French colony that later became Haiti. And they were mostly working in really brutal conditions on sugar plantations. And these enslaved people came from different ethnic and linguistic groups in Africa. So they weren't able to communicate without a common language. And they developed Creole in order to communicate, which allowed them eventually to organize among themselves against their enslavers. How come it's so similar to French? I think it's, it's not that similar to French. A lot of the vocabulary comes from French that people might have spoken 300 years ago, but it's written really differently from French. It doesn't look like French if you see it written. And the grammar is totally different. Most of the grammar, I think, comes from West African languages, and they aren't mutually intelligible. Comme propriétaire en station radio, qu'abaye information by public là. Tell me about Jean Dominique and Michel Montas. So I only know Jean through his voice and his writing. Although there's a lot of that, <laughs> but I never knew him in life and he never knew me. But he was this brilliant, fearless journalist and activist. He came from a relatively privileged background, a mixed race, very educated family in Haiti, but they were definitely not among the wealthiest people in Haiti. He was an agronomist by training and then lost his job because of the dictatorship and was imprisoned. And then he, as he put it, I'm an agronomist, I became a journalist. When I'm trying to explain to Americans who he was, I say that he was sort of a combination of Edward R. Murrow in that he was the most recognized voice in Haitian media. He was part Cy Hirsch in terms of doing hard-hitting investigations and revealing scandals. And he was part Ida B. Wells doing investigations while also speaking truth to power and part Studs Terkel, sort of a storyteller focused on the lives of ordinary people. There is something going on in a small piece of land called Haiti. Six million people, poor, illiterate, black, dirty, at the bottom of the human life. But this country has something to tell you. He was incredibly charismatic. Jonathan Demi wanted to make him a theater star with a one-man show, which is not what Jean wanted. He could be incredibly funny. And as I understand it, despite his kind of on-air persona of being someone who talked a lot, he could actually be quite laconic and shy in his private life. And as a journalist, even though he spoke a lot, he also put a lot of emphasis on listening, especially to marginalized people. He used to use this expression, which was, um, I need to sit on my school bench and learn from the people. Wow. That's Jean. And how about Michelle? So Michelle is the one who's actually trained as a journalist. She has a master's in journalism from Columbia, and she really ran the newsroom at Radio Haiti. She trained several generations of Haitian journalists. She did a lot of the work that made the station run. It is 7 
Actualité. Les événements du monde. La vie nationale. And like Jean, she is really passionate and driven by her convictions. And after he was killed, after he was assassinated, she took on even more of a public-facing role at the station. And like him, she came from a relatively privileged background. I would speak French to my parents. I would speak Creole to my nounou, who was taking care of me, who was in charge of me and uh, who was a mother to me. My nounou, she was called Tita. She taught me more about my own Haitian culture than anybody else. At school, we spoke French to the teachers. When we were out playing in the yard, we would speak Creole to each other. Of course, we were punished for it because we were not supposed to speak Creole, but we did anyway. And I'm sure any Haitian who is drowning whether he's French-speaking or not, we'll just yell in Creole, I'm way. <laughs> so in desperate times, Michelle's saying that all Haitians would just default to Creole, no matter what their social background. Is that the case with Jean too? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think what she's saying is that all Haitians speak Creole regardless of their class or education level. Haitians are at heart when push comes to shove people who think and feel in Creole. And so that's part of the reason it was so important to Jean-Dominique that Radio Haiti be a medium that spoke to people in their language. One day I uh, tried to work at Radio Haiti, two years as a freelance. Then the owner said, are you interested in buying the station? That was it. I had my chance. So this was in the late 60s under the dictatorship of François Duvalier. Papa Doc, right? Yeah. Few people, it can be safely said, have been so downtrodden, so badly used as the Haitians under Duvalier. His power was the power of the gun. His politics, the politics of the firing squad. And then the in 71, after Duvalier died, his son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, took over. Baby Doc, right? And that was also around the time that Jean-Dominique inaugurated Radio Haiti Inter. And Baby Doc was trying to ensure that his government continued to get aid from the United States. So they had to at least be on the surface less repressive than his father's dictatorship. But in spite of that, it was still a really difficult time to be reporting the news in Haiti. It was a very, very risky business. Radio then was not a news media. It was entertainment. And I start step by step, inch by inch, to introduce two things. First, Creole. Creole was used before in radio to advertise for things like soap or cleaning products. The new station opened with the jingles using traditional Haitian folk songs. At Radio Haiti under Jean-Dominique, they started making Creole much more prominent and using it for serious news. Radio, in this 
Creole-speaking country was a French-speaking media. And I tried to introduce information. Risky business, because every information, even about the garbage in the street, was seen by the power as opposition. Everything was political. You know, covering garbage in the streets was political. And when Jean says that we had to uh, eat the pudding on the side because it was too hot, it is very true. Wait, wait, what does that mean? So Jean used to say that getting into reporting the news was like eating la bouillie chaud, or hot porridge. So you start around the sides where it's cooler, and you slowly make your way in, but very cautiously. Part of what he would do there is what they called paolandaki, which is sort of talking about things indirectly so that the listeners would understand, but they could also kind of have plausible deniability if the regime accused them of sedition or something like that. At Radio Haiti, Michel had to learn to do all that kind of stuff too. For instance, uh, one labor organizer would come to me, I was head of the newsroom then, would come to me and say, now we have organized the seven factories. So we have seven unions to declare today. I said, slowly, you are going to declare two today. Tomorrow we'll talk about two more. Because we knew that our own existence depended on being careful. Radio Haiti présente Gouverneur de la Rosée. Shortly after he launched Radio Haiti Inter, Jean-Dominique and his sister Marlène translated the dialogue of a famous Haitian novel called Gouverneur de la Rosée, and Jean turned it into a radio play. Manuel retrouva la case fidèle à sa mémoire. So Gouverneur de la Rosée, which is known as Masters of the Dew in English, was a novel in French by a Haitian writer named Jacques Roumain, and he wrote this novel about a young man from rural Haiti named Manuel, who goes to Cuba to cut sugarcane and learns about communism. Then he comes back home and he finds his community suffering from drought and famine. And he uses the principles that he learned in Cuba and also the Haitian tradition of kombit, which is a kind of collective labor. And he uses that to organize his community so that they find water. And Manuel ends up dying in the process. But in spite of that, his spirit and his lessons live on. So what Jean and Madeleine did was they translated the dialogue into Creole. They kept the narration in French. So Jean does the narration. Le relan de fumée refroidie du charbon de bois. Quand but then all the characters are played by different journalists and actors, and they're speaking Creole, which is the language that the characters in the novel would have spoken anyway. Pas con ça, femme 15 ans. Moi, t'es qui, va? Con ça. L'empathie. Pas de gain séché, si là. And I don't think anybody cared that it was translated into Creole because it was just a novel. Talking about actual events happening, things that were happening, that would have worried them. But I think it was uh, part of Jean's effort to bring Haitian culture. It means everything. It meant everything from literature to music. 
It was great thing producing it because we didn't have any special sound effects, you know. At one point in the novel, there is a dog whining. We couldn't find a dog uh, whining in Port-au-Prince because they are well fed. But in the countryside, one of my people just actually got a very skinny dog to start whining in the countryside. So we could insert that into the novel, which is about the countryside. Et puis tant ou bat j'ai ou, li kite ou sans même ni fadi ou au revoir. Wow, I mean, listening to that, I'm just thinking maybe Haitians themselves listening to it at the time, you turn on the radio for a cultural program and you expect to hear French and suddenly you're hearing this language that maybe some people think doesn't really belong in the high arts. Yeah, I think that was part of it. And I also think part of it was just the fact that they were turning it into a radio play so that people who may not have been traditionally literate or people who didn't have access to a novel still had the chance to hear and experience this story. So how did Radio Haiti, with its commitment to Creole and its commitment to democracy and the rights of poor people all over the country, how did it survive the dictatorship? Well, it didn't, but it also outlasted the dictatorship. Radio Haiti was shut down violently in 1980. Most of the journalists were arrested. Some were imprisoned. Some were exiled, including Jean and Michel, who ended up going into exile in the United States. But after Baby Duck fell in 1986, they returned. What I remember of that fall of uh, uh, Duvalier is the use of one of my favorite words. It's called babouquette. And uh, people said uh, babouquette la tombée, which means the muzzle has fallen. Which means that people equated freedom to freedom of speech and freedom to speak Creole, their own language. When people said babouquette la tombée, they really meant we can speak out. And we can speak out in our own language and say what we want about what we are going through, being able to speak out. Okay, three things from me. Good things come in threes. First, please rate and review Subtitle on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We love feedback. And those ratings and reviews help new listeners find us. Number two, thanks to everyone who's signed up to receive our newsletter. And thanks to those who've emailed us to say how much they enjoy reading it. Have you signed up yet? You'll get an email every other week. It's a quick, fun read with our take on language-themed stories in the news. If that floats your boat, go to subtitlepod.com newsletter. And the third thing, well, at the risk of sounding preachy, please donate to your favorite refugee agency. The millions of Ukrainians who become refugees almost overnight is shocking and sobering. And so is this stat. Around the world, there are right now between 25 and 30 million refugees. Please do what you can. Laura, what made you want to learn Creole? After I graduated from college, I moved to Miami for a couple years. 
and I was doing community organizing, and then I worked for the health department there. And I had a lot of colleagues and friends from Haiti, and they would be talking about politics all the time. And I was really drawn to how passionate they were about their homeland and how they pushed back against the sort of standard demeaning U.S. narratives about Haiti, which were the only kinds of Haiti stories that I'd ever heard up to that point. And so I started learning Creole from them, and I really fell in love with the language. And one day I, um, I went to Blockbuster Video, and I saw this DVD on the shelf and just sort of checked it out on a whim, and that was The Agronomist. I watched it in my apartment in Miami, and I had no idea who Jean-Dominique or Michel Montas were. And I was just captivated and then heartbroken by this story. And so it, it's still totally wild to me that I'm the person who ended up being the archivist for it. Wow. And at the time, did you speak French? Not really. I had studied Spanish. So I knew Spanish and I knew a little bit of French. But I really learned Creole as Creole. People in Haiti have told me before that Americans tend to learn better Creole than French people do, because French people think they can kind of get by in French, but Americans tend to have to just learn Creole as a language. So, so what are your favorite Creole words or phrases? I like the word wawot, which means underripe, but it also means kind of inexperienced. I like the expression... Which literally means since the devil was a corporal, but it just means since time immemorial. <laughs> I like the phrase maonage, which is sort of something that we've been talking about when Jean talked about eating the porridge around the sides or speaking andaki, speaking in kind of veiled or coded ways. That's a form of maonage. The word maonage comes from maon. And those were the enslaved people who escaped and went to the mountains to form autonomous communities. But what it kind of means today are these forms of dissembling or hiding in plain sight, speaking indirectly. And I think that's really beautiful. So Jean-Dominique acquired the radio station during a dictatorship. He introduced Creole on the airways in news stories, as well as, as it had previously been in jingles and advertising. And the station somehow survived the dictatorships. And then after that, attempts were made to usher in democracy. But it was all pretty unstable. So, so what about Creole in the newsroom at that time? Could it thrive then? Yeah, I think as time went on and and Haiti was no longer under the same kind of dictatorship that it had been under during the Duvaliers, they were able to put more and more Creole on the air. But of course, it was never a purely Creole station. They reported in both languages. They would have a report and they would do a French version and a Creole version. I always think it's a mistake to sort of draw a binary between Creole speakers and French speakers and to assume that people who speak Creole don't understand French at all. 
Michelle tells this story about how they would stop at the gas station after Jean had done his morning editorial and he tended to do his editorials in French and the gas station attendant would be complimenting him or giving him feedback or ideas about the editorial. When he spoke, people understood, even if he was speaking in French. So at Radio Haiti, the the journalist's goal was to put the two languages at the same level and show that anything that could be done in French could also be done in Creole. They liked uh, expressing themselves in Creole, and a lot of them were using Creole in a very imaginative way uh, and transforming the language in the process. And a lot of terms like Zanglando, which means uh, bandits, the term Zanglando was invented in our newsroom. So a word for bandits that is particular to Creole. Yeah, this blew my mind when Michel told me that the word Zanglendo came from Radio Haiti's newsroom because that is such a common word now. And it comes from this term Zenglin that has a really interesting history. The Zenglin are a secret society group that uh, actually can terrorize the countryside, a religious group, but from the dark side of voodoo, and uh, that uh, during 200 uh, years of independence had been used to instill fear in uh, the peasantry. It refers to realities that are part of Haitian culture, which was really uh, what we wanted, that Haitian culture from the outside country, from the country that uh, was not Port-au-Prince. The word Zenglendo just came from Zenglin. So this newly coined word, it, it didn't only conjure up, for, for Haitians anyway, it didn't only conjure up an image of bandits, but of a, a slice of history involving a religious sect that had co-opted voodoo to strike fear into the hearts of poor Haitian people. That, that's, a, that's a powerful image. Yeah, for me, it's a really great example of how when Radio Haiti used Creole on the air, they weren't doing a word-for-word translation of the French. They were using what people call Creole, which means real, authentic Creole. Right, they were drawing on all of these cultural references. Jean-Dominique was really driven by the idea of ending exclusion because Haitian society for a very long time had been built on exclusion of the people that are called the moon andeo, the outside people who come from the pays andeo, which is the outside country, which means the countryside, really everything beyond the city and especially beyond Port-au-Prince. So that was really central to Radio Haiti's mission, was to end the exclusion of the majority of Haitian people. It's a tale of two countries. There's this clip where he explains it in English. It's actually some of the raw footage that didn't make it into The Agronomist. And he says that Haiti has been two countries for two centuries. It was this small country sophisticated this small minority of sophisticated people who attend church and speak French and go to fancy schools travel abroad to Paris or the United States and are involved in business and everybody else the majority of 
the country is this this outside country. The rest of the country they call the outside country. Le pays en dehors. <laughs> he says that not only do sort of the, the elite call people outside people, but people saw themselves as outside people and that they are people who come from the countryside that practice voodoo, who worship African gods rather than white god, who speak Creole rather than French. And what the end of the dictatorship and the end of military rule in Haiti represented was an opportunity for those people to say, we aren't outside people anymore. Now, the outside countries say, hey, I exist. I am not outside anymore. This country is ours. And I am this country as much as you. I'm starting to understand why this this whole project was so threatening to the authorities in Haiti. I mean, even you know, long after the Duvalier dictatorships. Yeah, Radio Haiti and especially Jean Dominique were always about holding powerful people accountable. And what ended up happening on April 3rd, 2000, is that Jean Dominique was assassinated as he arrived to work at Radio Haiti. He was killed alongside a station employee named Jean-Claude Louisin. And to this day, the individuals who were responsible have never been officially identified or brought to justice. What Michel always says is that everybody knew that they could come to Radio Haiti at any time. So probably nobody batted an eye when those gunmen came to the station that day. Michelle continued to run Radio Haiti for almost three years after Jean was killed. And on Christmas Day 2002, there was an attempt on her life. She survived, but her bodyguard, a young man named Maxime Saïd, died. He was 26 years old. And after that happened, more and more of Radio Haiti's journalists began to come forward and reveal the kinds of threats that they were getting. And so in February 2003, they decided to close the station in order to protect the lives of the journalists. And at first, they said that it was a temporary pause, but the station never reopened again. Which brings us to the day, a decade later, when... Laura, you met Michelle in the parking lot in North Carolina when she and those folks at Duke University were scoping around for someone to manage the archives of of Radio Haiti. What were those archives? I mean, what were you confronted with? Yeah, so the first thing that we received were many, many, many huge blue plastic bins of cassettes and reel-to-reel tapes, over 1,600 open reels and over 2,000 cassettes in the end, as well as a lot of papers and and a few other things. But the the majority are those tapes. And so then it was my job to 
really listen to all of those and provide description so that anybody with an internet connection can listen to Radio Haiti again. It was extremely important to me when I uh, donated Radio Haiti's archive to Duke University that the audio archives be made available to Haitians in Haiti. And uh, the initiative taken by, uh, by you, by Laura Wagner, <laughs> who was and remains the soul of these archives, uh, to introduce each recording in English, French and Creole was really more than I expected. But it was exactly what I wanted. What does Michelle mean there, Laura? For me, there was never any question that if we at Duke University were going to be the custodians of this collection that is a precious piece of Haitian national heritage, that it has to be as accessible as possible to audiences in Haiti and not just academic researchers. That meant that every single one of those over 5,000 audio files has to have detailed description in English, Haitian Creole, and French that tells you what it's about, what they're talking about, who is speaking, where it happened, when it happened, all of that. I need to give as much information as possible so that people can find these things again. The Creole description meant access. It also meant respect. Respect for language that had no respect before. And, you know, I'm glad of that initiative. And to me, that was what Jean would have wanted. When I, as a non expert observer of Haitian elites, when I see headlines about drug deals and massive corruption, assassination of a president, it doesn't seem like much has changed in Haiti since the bad old days of dictatorship and Creole being considered a, a low-class language of the uneducated rural people. So, I mean, have things really changed for Creole, do you think? I think there's a lot more Creole being spoken. There's still stigma. At my goddaughter's school, there are still signs up telling the students only to speak French at school. But there's a lot more Creole being spoken in the government, in universities. You hear Creole everywhere in the public discourse. I would say that Creole has gained tremendous status. But I think that... Changing the language doesn't change the structures of power. I think that due to decades of international interference in Haiti's political affairs, there has never actually been true sustained democracy in Haiti. You talked about violence and corruption. Those things have never gone away. There have always been corrupt elites, some of whom are Haitian, many of whom are foreign, exploiting the Haitian people. If things are happening in Creole, but it's still the same powerful people who remain powerful and who are monopolizing the conversation, whatever language they're speaking, then that doesn't translate to an end to exclusion. And the thing that Jean-Dominique and Radio Haiti 
we're fighting for. To me, what has been lost is the focus that we had on having the majority of Haitians express themselves, people living in the countryside. And those people right now, I don't feel that their voices are being heard. And when I say that uh, it has gone backwards, I mean that not in the language itself, but in the way the language gives access to people from the countryside to the national stage. Michelle Montas. She's currently living in New York where she works as a freelance journalist and writer. Laura Wagner is writing a book that brings together the story of Radio Haiti and its archive with the story of Haiti's 2010 earthquake and its aftermath. Thanks to the Human Rights Archive at the Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Duke University, which houses the Radio Haiti Archive. The Radio Haiti collection was digitized and processed with grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Council on Library and Information Resources. Thanks also to Craig Braden, Maggie Dixon, Tanya Thomas, Christelle Rocourt, Catherine Farmer, Aileen Wallet, and everyone else who worked on the Radio Haiti project. Thanks as always to Alison Reed and everyone at the Linguistic Society of America. Special thanks to Jeb Sharp and Crystal Knapp. Our sound designer is Tina Toby. Alison Shaw manages our newsletter and social media. Subtitle is a member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, where a bunch of podcasters who are all dedicated to telling stories about stuff that you're not going to come across in many other places. Here's one of the other Hub and Spoke podcasts, Ministry of Ideas. In the latest episode, host Zachary Davis explores the complex nature of national borders and discovers they're not really the fixed lines on a map some of us may imagine them to be. Learn more at ministryofideas.org and check out all of the Hub and Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.